to the show with me, Dan, and my guest, George Woodger. How you doing, George? Very well, thank you, Dan. Good, good. Okay, this is our our second time around having a chat on the podcast. Um, so welcome back. It's good to have you back. Um, what I didn't do last time, uh, which I've, I've only started doing after our chat, is doing a little bit of an intro um, about you. Um, okay. So... I'll just say how we know each other and basically um, why I wanted you on the show. Um, uh, we know each other because uh, we've been friends for a while. Um, we we sort of have a friend group that we, we met through um, and we've been friends for quite a few years now. Um, and yeah. the reason, reason I sort of wanted you on the show was because um, you're a junior doctor, which uh, we went into a lot more in the last episode. Um, and I thought it would be, especially during this time, just your sort of views on things and your experiences. So that was, yeah, that was the main reason why why I wanted you on. Um, cool. So this time, this episode, um, I just thought I'd kick us straight off and, um, yeah, ask you about something that, you know, we already said we, we'd probably be good to discuss. So, um during this time, sort of the coronavirus times, uh, vaccines are becoming a lot more um, topical. Um, they're becoming a lot more in people's consciousness, um, and it's on the news a lot. Um, so, yeah, I just thought maybe we could start with that and just ask you what what your understanding of vaccines are, what what vaccines are, and um, yeah, um, if you could talk a little bit about about vaccines and what they are, what they're used for. Yeah, excellent. Okay. Um, so essentially a vaccine um, is a form of a uh, pathogen, so like a, a virus or a bacteria. And it's, it's usually a, a form that doesn't cause disease um, that is uh, introduced into the body either by injection or um, we have some nasal sprays, flu vaccines now, um, and it gives you acquired immunity. Um, so that means that basically your body um, fights this foreign pathogen or foreign piece of material um, and produces a, a response from the immune system so that if you're infected by um, the uh, the actual uh, virus or bacteria later on, your body has already developed that immune response and can quickly deal with it without you developing the disease. Um, so in terms of um, sort of why we need vaccines, um, they're one of our most effective um, health interventions. Um, other than clean water, um, they really have been the advent of, um, you know, the decreases in mortality that we've seen over the past sort of 200 years and why people are living a lot longer. Like what, like what sort of examples of things that um, have been er eradicated or just uh, prevented uh, by the use of vaccines? Um, so most mostly childhood illnesses, um, things like measles, um, uh, mumps, rubella, they're all they still exist in society, but at much lower levels. Um, the only disease that has been fully eradicated from the earth is smallpox. Right. Um, which incidentally was the first disease that we found a vaccine for. Um, I can tell you a bit about smallpox if you like. So um, smallpox, do you, yeah, do you know when that sort of came about and when the va were vaccines around before smallpox or was it sort of developed? So Edward Jenner, yeah, so Edward Jenner developed the first vaccine 
Um, what he noticed, essentially, the story is it's in the early 1800s or just before then. And he noticed that um, milking girls who would milk cows um, would develop quite a similar infection to smallpox called cowpox. Um, and somehow he realised that these girls who developed cowpox um, didn't then develop smallpox later on. So his um, vaccine uh, was to introduce, um, basically, he infected uh, children with um, a lymph, which is sort of like infected kind of pus or um, from a cowpox blister. Um, and he'd introduce that to children um, and then that would prevent them from developing smallpox later on. Uh, so that was in the 1800s. Um, the last person to be infected with smallpox was uh, a, somebody who was working in a laboratory in the medical school in Birmingham in 1978, um, who had somehow managed to, they'd managed to release a bit of it and she'd um, caught it yeah, from working in the laboratory. And I think she passed away from Manchester. Okay, so you give, is it just basically a, a small dose of the virus? So there's lots of different types of vaccine. Um, some of them are um, live attenuated forms. So that means that's the live virus um, with some of the components that cause the disease removed or altered in some ways so that it doesn't cause the full blown disease. So it's like modified, a modified virus. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. yes, it's a modified form of the virus. Um, they also have, um, so that those viruses would be able to invade cells, but not um, cause those sort of symptoms that are the dangerous sort of symptoms that would risk your life. Um, the other forms of vaccine, they have um, just pieces of sort of genetic material or, pro or surface proteins. Um, there's um, other vaccines that are sort of inactivated forms of, the of a virus so that they don't have the ability to cause disease, but your body will still sort of mount a response to the foreign material only. Okay, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy that they can actually modify, modify a virus. Like, is it just done on a microscopic level? Do you know anything about that? Like, how do they modify a virus? Oh, um, I'm not sure of the laboratory techniques involved. Yeah, that's mad. Um, okay, so yeah. so, um, what's sort of from a, a layman's point of view, like, would it, would it be good? Like, it just seems really simple. It seems really, really simple in terms of not obviously the laboratory stuff, the, the modifying, but like just getting the, getting a form of the virus. Um, so is there any sort of validity due to, I don't know, just, uh, getting the virus, getting a virus, you know, during this time where there's a lot of stuff about herd immunity and all that sort of stuff. Like, is there, is there validity to that? And what's that sort of, what's the sort of thoughts around that? Is it, is that, is it valid to, to sort of, I don't know, um, in a controlled way, get people to, have the virus or is it just too too strong that it's too dangerous um so if you're talking about kind of letting um you know a certain percentage of the population um catch the coronavirus and and then um that would protect the majority you know, essentially because the virus wouldn't have anyone else to infect mm. 
um, is the idea of herd immunity. So herd immunity as a concept is either that you have a vaccine that produces herd immunity. So in terms of like a measles vaccine, um, if 95% of children have had the measles vaccine, then those 5% that haven't will be protected by the herd because the virus won't have the kind of um, the intervals or the, the intermediate steps to get to the child from the infected source, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, but in terms of the coronavirus, we don't have a vaccine. So the way they're using herd immunity as a concept there is that if it's just letting people become infected. So say 60, 70% of the population is infected and gets through the, um, gets through the, the infection. And the problem with that is that although there's a, a very small risk, there is still a, uh, you know, a, there's a 0.02% mortality rate for people in their thirties and forties. If you add that up in the population, then you're still looking at, you know, a couple of thousand or 3,000 deaths. Yeah, yeah. Um, in very young people. Um, and we don't know how long the immunity would last for. So if the immunity only lasts a year and we let all those, you know, let the virus sort of run rampant and um, and then in a year's time, we've lost all of that progress. That would be quite a shame. So. Mm. It's not an ideal uh, option, really. Okay. Um, and do you know the like? Do you know the dangers of vaccines themselves? Like, you know, there's sort of you were saying about the more with coronavirus in particular, the mortality rate, uh, the rough, rough mortality rate for 30, 40 year olds. I guess 30, 40 year olds and under. Um, that's the rough mortality rate, is it? Yeah, so for younger people, um, it's, it's very rough mortality rate that I've, I've read for. Um, yeah, for older people, it would be higher. Yeah, certainly. yeah. So, so is there is there uh, negative effects of vaccines? Is there like a mortality rate really with vaccines or anything like that? Or, um, so there's lots of kind of reasons why people are against vaccines. Um, uh, so. One of them is, uh, well, it depends on the vaccine, really. So one of them is about whether or not children um, could develop autism from the MMR vaccine. Um, so that sort of stems from a doctor called Andrew Wakefield, um, who came up with this study that was published in The Lancet, um, which linked the MMR vaccine to autism and certain types of bowel disorders. What's The Lancet? The Lancet's a medical journal, sorry. Okay um the that's since been debunked and andrew wakefield was, is was struck off by the general medical council um, and it turned out that he'd actually had a financial um kind of interest in um th that whole thing and and the lancet re uh, withdrew his paper and said that apologized for publishing it but the damage was done essentially and people to this day still think that the mmr vaccine causes autism um there's several massive studies now which show that there's no link. Um, I mean, there's lots of reasons why other, like a lot of people just kind of mistrust um, science and mistrust the government. Um, they think that pharmaceutical companies or scientists are trying to sell them a product regardless of what the harmful consequences might be. Um, they think that there's certain chemicals in vaccines that can that cause um, adverse side effects um one of them is uh, i think it's called the uh which is sort of like a 
it's got mercury it's a mercury based preservative which a lot of people are concerned about um again they thought that that was what was causing autism uh which has also um, been debunked i think there's also some vaccines have had thimerosal removed um so there's really a wide range of reasons why people are against vaccines are there any um, are there any legitimate concerns about vaccines are there any um dangers with vaccines yeah so um in very so there are adverse effects of vaccines so um in terms of there are very small numbers of cases because this is a this is a product that you know we've given to thousands of people or thousands of, of children um most of the kind of adverse effects are um about the the injection sites um can become a bit inflamed um some children develop a fever or sort of like a mild um type of illness around the time of the vaccinations and in rare cases um those fevers can lead to um, seizures in, in children but the adverse effects are extremely rare um, and the benefits of having a back of the vaccine schedule fully outweigh the risks of um, you know these tiny minority of cases where um, they do develop some adverse effects yeah okay and what what is the reason that because uh, they're saying like uh, the coronavirus vaccine could take like a year year and a half maybe more what, what is the reason it takes so long to produce a vaccine? Um, so I guess what we're talking about there is more um, how, you know, what, how is a vaccine produced? Mm. Um, so there's essentially uh, three or four stages. So the first stage is that they have to do the laboratory work to develop the actual product. Um, and that can take years. That can take like sort of two to four years until they've developed a product that they're happy with to start testing it. Um, and they they can then test that in sort of like cell lines and um, things in the laboratory to see whether or not that's theoretically going to um, produce a response. Um, they also test it in monkeys and um, rats and other lab animals that have similar kind of constitution to human beings to see if, if, it, if it's got a good chance of working. So they don't want to spend all this money on something that's not going to work. Mm. or um, doesn't have a good chance of, of you know, of working. Yeah. Um, and then they test it on a very small group of, of healthy adults, um, which are usually around 20 adults, something like that, um, to see if there are any majorly negative side effects of the, of the vaccine, which mean they wouldn't be able to proceed into the next stage. Um, if none of the adults develop any kind of severe side effects, then they move into a phase of... Um, which the Oxford vaccine is now in, which is sort of a phase two clinical trial where, or it's a two slash three, um, where we've given it to sort of maybe a couple of thousand people. Um, and what you're looking for again is side effects, but also after a period of time, whether the vaccine works and it's developed immunity or you can test the antibodies at a later point. Um, so, I mean, for a vaccine schedule that takes six months that you have to have three doses, um, that sort of drags that period of time out. Mm. Um, and then once it's been proven to be safe and effective, then you can use it sort of in a bigger study. Um, again, you usually choose a cohort of people um, in the tens of thousands or up to hundreds of thousands, and again, monitor for adverse side effects. So if, say, a side effect only occurs in one in 10,000 cases, 
you need to have a study size of you know a hundred thousand people to be able to have a good chance of measuring that mm. um and then once it passes that stage which again can take years um it then is is kind of rolls out into the market and um it's again then monitored from a distance by the uh, disease control and things like that um, okay so so one and a half years or one year is a very uh yeah yeah it seems like yeah it could be a lot longer than that yes possibly and that's i mean there are i think about 100 different candidates for vaccines that have been developed or are being developed for coronavirus um a a good percentage of them won't work or will fail the safety data or things like that so um it's not a there's no guarantee that there's a you know a vaccine on very close on the horizon yeah yeah i guess when you said like it can take like three years just in the lab part of it i think that's one of the most shocking for me is because <laughs> as just a, an average person it like i say it, it can be so simplified in your mind just like oh we just got to get a bit of the virus put it in a <laughs> put it in um yeah uh what's it called a needle uh, uh injection what's it called um yeah, syringe. Syringe. That's the one. That's the one. Um, chuck it in a syringe and then just inject it. Um, so, I mean, clearly there's there's a hell of a lot that goes on to for it to take three years, like or potentially three years uh, to produce. Well, it can take. Yeah, I mean, there's some. I mean, there's some diseases which we haven't been able to develop a va- a, a viable vaccine for at all, like um, Ebola, malaria. I mean, there's some ca- there's some recent candidates that show some promise of working but um you know that's been 50 years of research and we've wow. still not developed a, a viable candidate yeah i guess mm. one of the uh positives or the optimistic things about this is that the whole world has a vested interest in this vaccine coming as quickly as possible um, yeah and obviously, you could say that for everything, but it's very much in every single country's consciousness. Whereas, um, you know, something like Ebola, the average person would just think, "Well, that that was just an African problem." Um, where well, there was that big scare, wasn't there, where mm. they thought that Ebola was going to come to the West, and since then, the amount of you know research money that's gone into it has gone up by you know a number of times. Yeah, and they develop this vaccine or um that they're currently testing so yeah that does make a big has a big influence yeah yeah um so back to the people that are sort of like uh against vaccine anti-vaccine so so you cited the sort of uh the autism study uh that was debunked so it's basically proven to be to be absolute rubbish basically um and like, it, wh- why do you think there's still such uh, a large anti-vaccine movement um, amongst people? Um, it it seems. Do you think it's all just stemmed from that, and it's just going from there, and people are just still convinced it's autism? Or do you think there's other reasons that people don't don't want to get a vaccine, don't want their kids to get vaccines? Um, well, as long as there's been anti, you know, there's been uh, anti-vaccine activists since there's been vaccines right um since the smallpox vaccine actually there was a 
uh, a big group of people because they made the smallpox vaccine mandatory. And um, there was various opposition for religious reasons and, um, you know, hygiene, moral reasons. People just, some people just didn't like the idea of it, basically. Yeah. Um, and there were quite big demonstrations about people saying that, you know, you're taking away our liberty to choose what happens to our children. Um, so I think it depends on, I think there's a lot of um, false information that people get kind of um, go down a sort of a rabbit hole, mm. uh, sort of conspiracy theories. Um, they're currently very angry with Bill Gates um, as he's their current target of sort of like, they think he's, um, you know, he's got financial interest in vaccines and he doesn't care about the consequences and things like this. And, the more you read about this sort of thing and the more people that you, you know, follow who are anti-vaccination, the further down the rabbit hole you go kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Um, but there are, you know, other people who just don't like the idea of injecting their children with um, forms of a disease, you know. Um, and I don't know, it's difficult to... That's their health belief. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't... It's difficult to criticise how people want to bring up their own children you know i guess you know you said it's you know it's anti-vaccine sort of movement that's been going on for ever since vaccines invented um i guess it's become more pronounced and easier to get sucked in to uh, anti-vaccine sort of mindset or movement um since you know the creation of the internet and um just in general it just seems like there's more and more sort of pockets of people or larger pockets of people that um uh, are more on the sort of uh, are falling down like conspiracies like sort of rabbit holes um so it's yeah it seems quite quite worrying that um information can can be turned so quickly like it always just misinformation is just spread so quickly um I mean, the other thing to say, I think, is um, I think that w one thing that we don't really um, often understand is that if you believe that, you know, Bill Gates is creating a vaccine to kill 100,000 children and you really believe that, then it explains your behaviour, you understand? Like, you would be extremely kind of hot on it and be thinking like, you know, anybody who doesn't understand this is a, you know, um, needs to get with the programme, like, it's like people who think that abortion is murdering children. If you genuinely thought that doctors were murdering children, then obviously you'd be out on the streets kind of protesting. Yeah. You understand what I mean? So what you're saying is uh, they don't legitimately have these fears? Or are you saying that... No, I'm saying if you did, if you were a person who genuinely believed that a vaccine was, might kill your child, then you would have a very strong... Um, your, your actions would be very strongly against them having that vaccine if you understand yeah sure sure so yeah when people uh do protests against vaccines things like that it comes from a an initial belief is that basically what you're saying yeah yeah, yeah. I, I mean you can understand how their beliefs are so strong if they if you if they've accepted those initial kind of um concepts that the vaccines are, could kill their child and, you know from the point of view of uh your profession but also i guess your uh personal life as well what what where do you find reliable information nowadays i think that's a concern for me 
Um, and I, I struggle sometimes and I feel like I'm uh, uh, a lot more aware, very aware of the amount of misinformation and uh, fake news uh, that's around. Um, but how do you personally like navigate that? How do you find like truth, more truthful sources and reliable sources? Because it just seems there's just so much content um yeah i think that with them um, you know like with the stuff to do with vaccines and things like that i mean i've been having a, a quick look um on the internet earlier today um if you google a question like you know about vaccine then the first sort of 10 results are usually from um reliable sources like the world health organization um you know um Centre for Disease Control, uh, Public Health England, the NHS websites. Like, there's lots of. I think you need people should trust these sort of institutions that um, are set up to give us reliable health information. Um, often, when people are um, trying to support their views on social media about uh, against vaccines, the evidence that they'll cite is a YouTube video or, a, um, you know, like a site which is sort of. Um, got a bias towards um, that sort of information. Mm. Um, I think it's, but then what they, uh, one, one problem is that they often don't trust conventional um, like outlets of kind of information like the World Health Organization. They think that they're all in some sort of global conspiracy to um, against vaccine, you know, to, to be pro-vaccine and they've got this financial interest and things like that. So it's, it's hard um it's, yeah, it's a difficult balance, really. Yeah. Uh, but for me, yeah, to look for when I look for information, I I look kind of yeah, in those legitimate sort of sources of of these um, institutions that have set up to to provide good information like that. Yeah, yeah, and it, this trust, this mistrust, is really crucial. It seems to be where it because yeah, um, someone like you and me would would go to. I always go to the NHS website. Um, uh, because because I just think you know it's reliable for my own reasons but other people would see the NHS website as uh, got an agenda and um, whereas this person that you know I saw on YouTube or you know has got this little website with a with a following uh, with a loyal following he sp he seems to speak the truth and he hasn't got any vested interest um, so I guess it's yeah like I say it's this mistrust of of large institutions um and yeah it's i'm not sure well i guess maybe part of that comes from when large institutions really do let people down and there's a lot of corruption um you know over the years there's been you know countless corruption in in, in large companies or multinationals and governments and i think over time maybe people get a bit bit sick of it um i think mm. like what what keeps your faith in these in some of these uh big organizations that are producing uh information um what what are some of your i guess arguments for the nhs website as opposed to uh i don't know some other random small or large sort of channel that is going against everything that the nhs is trying to say like what's your obviously you're a doctor so but what is your rationale, your argument for people to go to the NHS website as opposed to um, something else? 
Um, well, I guess the so the people who create these um, information pages about on the NHS website um, are there so they kind of look at the, the medical information from the primary sources of like sort of research studies and things like that, and then summarise it into a readable form for the for the public. Mm. So I guess my trust is in them in that process, like and um, the people who are employed to do that. Yeah. Um, and I guess that as well, I've never come across a case where I've read something on the NHS website or um, you know a, a kind of a similar page, and then that's gone wrong, or you know that 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 piece of information is is demonstrably false. Yeah. Um, I think the NHS as well is not run for profit, um, and yeah. <laughs> I don't think it has it probably does have some vested interests but I, I don't think that there's no strong kind of financial pull in in um, any one direction that I can kind of um I would recognize yeah I mean from my own personal point of view that's one of the the reasons I would trust the NHS maybe more than um certain American healthcare websites um because it is a publicly funded institution um there's a lot less of that sort of like uh underhand sort of stuff um and it's not as open or yeah it's not as open to corruption as um the private sector in terms of um uh, healthcare can be um that's one of my reasons i feel like um and also if if institutions this big and that've been going this long were that level of corrupt also obviously there's there's all levels of corruption in any organization from just people lying to their colleagues every now and again or you know but the level of corruption that is thrown at like um these these public institutions like the nhs or yeah who or any of that um it would have been found out by now um and it just seems yeah it just seems so irrational to to not tr mm. not trust something that's been around for this long and still has a a very good um reputation in terms of uh reliability of information um, yeah I think, that's, I think that's right yeah that's, that's exactly right mm, okay um so w back to the sort of vaccine thing of um you you mentioned sort of children uh getting the mmr vaccine um what's your sort of so mmr is mumps measles rubella yeah um and uh yeah so what's your sort of view on the debate around it being compulsory oh okay um well i think it's a difficult balance i, I mean i'm um somebody who does believe in, uh, you know, autonomy of the patient and um, that I think that people should be able to make their own healthcare choices. In, and a strong theme in medical ethics is that people should be able to make their own healthcare choices, even if that decision is unwise. Um, the difficulty with the debate around the MMR or with childhood vaccines is that by not vaccinating your child and then sending them into a mainstream educational facility um you're then exposing other children to a risk um mm. so 
that complicates matters essentially. Uh, I don't. My view is I don't think that there should ever be a person who comes who comes to your house, breaks down your door, and vaccinates your kids. You know, against your will. <laughs> Um, but I, there's, I think that depending on, I, I would be up for a system where if the vaccination rate had dropped to a certain level um, and there was a real danger of measles spreading throughout schools, that um, children who had not had a measles vaccination would not be allowed to enter into secondary schools or into primary schools. Um, right. So, that you think, so you think that that would be a good thing to enforce then a good policy that if you haven't had the the vaccine then you can't go into secondary school i think so yeah if only when that level has dropped to a significant kind of like risk if the if the risk of a massive measles outbreak is so high that um because the vaccination rate has dropped so far then i think the only like legitimate course of action is to um kind of exclude people who've not had a measles or children who've not had a measles vaccination from school yeah Um, but then that's not an easy decision to make because you'll be you would be affecting their educational experience um essentially down to the views of their parents Mm. yeah it's a very difficult decision i think that we've got it just about right at the moment that we've still got um high but you know dropping off levels of vaccination i think that if there was enough you know, a, a genuinely large measles outbreak, then the rate of vaccinations would go back up because people can see that as a very real danger um, to their children and they will react. Whereas when there's no measles in the population, um, one of the arguments for not vaccinating their children is that they, they're not at any risk of getting it. Yeah. Um, there's a few concerns I have about it not being compulsory. Um, okay. One of them is America saw a huge uh, outbreak of measles, um, just from my understanding, um, uh, during Donald Trump's presidency. Um, and he had made quite a few comments, uh, anti-vaccine comments, which when the measles got worse and the outbreak was getting worse in the US, he then backtracked and said, everyone's got to get a shot. Um, yeah. He didn't make it compulsory, but he, you know, he was just from a... PR point of view, I guess. Um, um, so I'm concerned that by waiting for it to go too far, uh, waiting for it to be an outbreak before it's compulsory, then we've got problems. Also, I don't completely buy this whole thing about parents having um, the choice over their children when it comes to health that affects other people. Uh, And even the child itself, you know, there's the Children Act, which was brought in to um, protect children. I I believe it was to protect children uh, from a healthcare point of view and that the healthcare system have to um, do what's best for the child, um, no matter what the parents say. Is that something about that? Um, Yeah, so I think that in in rare cases where... um, a parent's views are so extreme that they are um, causing uh, or have the potential to cause serious harm to a child, then there can be a court kind of um, injunction which um, rules in the favour of a uh, best interests kind of decision um, in relation to a child's care. So, say, um, so I think that 
recently there was a case of a young child in Great Ormond Street Hospital who was um, severely um, mentally um, disabled and had a terminal illness um, and the parents wanted to move him to Italy to try an experimental treatment. Um, but the doctors who were looking after him didn't think that that would be in his best interests because there was no evidence that this treatment you know, would help. Mm. Um, and I think that it, it, there was a decision eventually made against the parents' wishes to keep him in the country. Mm. Um, but I think that that sort of thing is quite extreme. And I think you have to prove um, there has to be a, a really real and imminent risk uh, to use them sort of powers. Sure. Yeah. Um, I understand what you're saying, though. I mean, in my view, everybody should get their children vaccinated because I think vaccines work and they're safe and effective. Um, I just wonder when you start to talk about things like mandatory vaccination, you have to think about what the in, what's what is the enforcement, um, you know, what's the what's going to make people who don't want to vaccinate their children and refuse get them vaccinated. Right, yeah. Like, are they going to go to prison? Are they going to get a fine? Are their children not going to be allowed in school? Um, yeah, and obviously, yeah, that is a part of it that is very difficult. Um, yeah, I think, I guess I sort of compare it as well. Like, are you allowed to give birth in this country without a midwife, or without any healthcare yeah. professionals present? You are. Yeah. yeah. And you can get, you can give birth um wherever you want um your midwife has to go and uh, go where if you have a midwife and say you want to get give birth under a tree in the park then you can call your midwife and say you know i'm in labor and the midwife has to go and go yeah, but, wherever you are but are you allowed to give birth and not call a midwife and just have birth give birth yeah absolutely and what you're allowed to cut the umbilical cord yourself and all that sort yeah. of stuff oh really yeah yeah oh. I didn't know that. Okay. Um, I guess like the other thing is sort of like, what about children who are kind of morbidly obese? Because if the parents are giving them, you know, enough food to make them severely overweight, mm. <clears throat> I guess that's more sort of. Um, yeah, but you can't thing. catch you can't yeah. catch fat like you can't. Yeah, you true. know, you're not going to go to a school and and if you're fat, and other kids will get it. I mean, if you're bringing loads of sweets, you maybe. But um, <laughs> I think I think the concern for me is the public health concern as well as obviously the child itself. Um, and yeah, I think from the from the point of view, if it wasn't contagious, then I would agree that it shouldn't be compulsory but for example um a few weeks ago um or oh, now i guess it would be i don't know if illegal is about let's just say a few weeks ago when it was more of a lockdown mm. um it would be illegal or against the rules or however you want to put it for a yeah. child to go and play in a playground or if you knew your child you saw a group of kids and you knew your child really wanted to run over and lick all their faces or you know whatever you mm. to let the child do that would be illegal so i guess i know i know 
this comes back to your point about this being a crisis and this being a point where we have to be really um we have to be stricter but i think the theory in itself that if your child is more at risk of um putting other child other children at risk then then there needs to be i don't know ways to curve that um, well, my opinion of it, I, I sway, I sway back and forth for mandatory vaccination in for children who are going to school. Mm. Um, I think that a cutoff of, um, you know, of of how many, well, what percentage of children are vaccinated in in a particular area or a particular school is a good way of, of going forwards. Because if ninety percent of kids are vaccinated, then or ninety five percent of kids are vaccinated, then the rest are still protected by herd immunity. Um, mm. So if uh, you know, I think that the the risk of letting uh, the ninety fifth percent you know percentile child to come to school unvaccinated is fairly low to the other kids. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point, actually. Um, Whereas if it was down to say seventy five percent, and there was a real risk of an of a you know an epidemic, then I think yeah. that you can for more stringent measures and say actually no you have to have a vaccine now yeah no that is a really good point and um because worst case scenario if 95 percent of the population have been vaccinated of their own free choice because currently mm. you can choose uh, whether you want your child vaccinated um the worst case scenario is that five percent of the child population would catch it yes but yeah, but the the risk the 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 likelihood is that they wouldn't because their the disease just doesn't have anywhere to go. They can't jump from child to child. Does that make sense? Yeah, because most of the children around you uh, have been vaccinated. Um, exactly. Yeah. So the 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 level will remain a rumbling, but very low level of a few cases, kind of a year. Whereas yeah. um, if it it kind of increases exponentially with the decrease in the number of children who are vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I guess you can't ever fully police it because, you know, once uh, borders open up again and there's people coming in and out, you know, you could have a child from another country who's got measles and then they come in, you know, so you can't ever fully fully control yeah. it. You know, if someone comes on a holiday or whatever um, and their kid with the measles plays with your kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Um. Another thing I want to talk about, um, which is sort of tied in, um, with the sort of anti-vaccine movement, is uh, alternative medicine. Um, okay. Or complementary medicine. Um. Uh. Could you could you describe what alternative medicine is? Um. I guess it's anything that. Um, is outside what you would normally be prescribed by your by a you know a doctor like a GP or a um, or, you know a hospital doctor so uh, conventional medicines or um, based on evidence-based medicine uh, treatments that have been proven to work in clinical trials and things like that there are some GPs who are quite advocates of alternative medicine or complementary therapies and they do sometimes um, prescribe some things that are it's strictly evidence-based right so is that um, is that sort of a short example a, a short a definition of 
alternative medicine is that it's not evidence-based generally it's not it's not quite generally it's not that's probably not the right that's probably not the definition of it i'd say it's probably um yeah it's more just treatments or therapies that are um, outside of that sort of um western model of medicine of of kind of uh, drugs that are designed to act on certain receptors and it's all very science-based whereas alternative medicines um are more sort of plot usually plant-based or um they're based on sort of traditional um traditional medicine kind of ideas um so what's some examples of alternative medicine uh so saint john's wort is a good example um so that's a sort of a from a plant um preparation um and although there is actually some evidence that it does work it does have some effects in depression um, a lot of people take it for, for low mood, um, but it's got quite a lot of side effects and it can interact with a lot of other medicines. So it's quite a quite a risky thing to take. So you might think that because it's made from a plant, you know, it's safe, it's natural, um, but it's not necessarily always the case. Right, right. Um, and I guess would uh, acupuncture, would that be considered alternative? I guess, yeah, I think so. I think that would probably be alternative or complementary, I think is the latest kind of word. Okay. Um, Homeopathy? Yes, homeopathy. um, So I think there's sort of like, for me, in my view, there's sort of a spectrum of these things with kind of uh, acupuncture, um, uh, I guess, osteopath, kind of chiropractor type um, uh, things. And then um, pre, uh, sort of plant-based therapies that are proven to have some effect um, on one end of the spectrum and then sort of homeopathy with which is fairly non-evidence-based um, diluting sort of water down several thousand times um, I, it doesn't seem very sensible to me that's you know some people um, swear by it and then moving further down the spectrum, we have things like crystal therapies and stuff that's really kind of in that domain of, um, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. Right. So so is it fair to say the further you go along this spectrum from starting at acupuncture, um, going further all the way to, to crystal therapy, the less evidence there is to sort of back up? These yeah, things? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also quite often is there's less harm in you know in doing crystal therapy whereas um so taking some plant preparations or um having some certain you know certain types of like of, of of therapies which aren't really um evidence-based can sometimes be more help uh, more harmful like a chiropractic you know you, well, I, I, yeah, you hear I mean, horror I mean, stories of like people going to a chiropractor and then just sort of clicking loads of bones and twisting their neck and like them having an even worse pain than they did before and yeah i mean there's risks with these sort of, yeah with those sort of things but um I, I i think that there's a bigger risk where people i mean i think i personally you know i'm trained to be a gp uh, if people are using complementary therapies um as long as they're safe i've got no problem with that at all like people have their own health beliefs and they're more than entitled to you know use things that they believe in 
Yeah. Um, I think that I'm much more um, kind of resistant when somebody wants to use alternative or complementary therapies as a replacement um, for the treatment of a serious illness. Right. So that's why I guess one of the reasons for the name change is that com- uh, complementary uh, medicine is, is to, to be seen as an addition as opposed to uh, instead yeah. of. Yeah. And I think, you know, people um, who have cancer and need to have chemotherapy and aren't really sure about it are in quite a vulnerable position for somebody mm. who's a naturopath or however, you know, whatever. Um, they've branded themselves to say oh we don't need to have this chemotherapy you should come and you know come to my workshop and i'll make you a preparation that's Mm. just as good i think that's yeah it's a a tricky situation which yeah um so um would there be any alternative medicine in or sorry uh, complementary medicine that you would recommend in in certain situations like obviously very particular situations but are there any that you sort of could would consider prescribing um well i don't really have much to do with them because none there aren't really much um complementary or any really complementary therapies available in the nhs as far as i'm aware okay i think there are there are different pockets of um where certain like local healthcare providers will and provide some some services i think but um i i never really recommend or um or prescribe or however or um you know refer anyone to this to that sort of uh, that sort of therapies have you tried any um let's see well i'm actually a level one reiki healer <laughs> okay <laughs> and what's a what's a reiki healer so Reiki is the uh, practice of um, the laying on of hands, as I understand it. It's sort of a, tra- it's kind of a Eastern sort of therapy, which involves um, the transfer of energy from yourself into another person, I guess. Um, we have a family friend who's, um, who used to come to our, come around quite a lot. And she, I remember once I had tonsillitis, and she put her hands on my neck, and I had a, there was a really warm kind of sensation into my neck. Uh, I did feel a little bit better afterwards, so I wanted to go and kind of investigate that a little bit and see, um, you know, if there was anything to it. Um, and she said, "Why don't you do this like first step into being a, a Reiki healer?" So uh, I I did. It was like a one day course. Um, I didn't really, yeah, find much from it to be honest. Um, so you're not converted then? No, no, sadly not. Um, I think that the the warming of the hands was mostly. I think she just rubs her hands together really quickly. That's <laughs> okay. what that. Right. Um, but yeah, interesting. I think that you know, there's a there's a place for these sort of things, and you know, going for a massage or um, doing rate, getting some reiki. Like, I think that it all comes under that kind of umbrella of um, this new term, wellness. Um, kind of like trying to look after your mental health and holistic having some, yeah having some sort of um you know input uh, some time to yourself to do things whether that's reading a book and or going to a, uh you know for a massage or whatever it is um i don't necessarily anything bad to come from that are you are you a bit concerned i'm concerned because um okay i First of all, they've taken the word holistic and they've and it's now become more of a 
you know, a complementary medicine term. Whereas holistic just means uh, considering everything, doesn't it? It means like a holistic approach to yeah. something. The word just means considering all parts of, you know, medicine. It means considering all parts of the body and the lifestyle, which is a is a good term to use anyway. Um, but anyway, that aside, I, I'm just I am concerned that that people's understanding of complementary medicine is not the same as yours, and I feel like people can be really easily led to part with their money their time um and sensible beliefs because they buy into this stuff too much um yeah and i don't so, I, I don't see it as the same category as like reading a book or like meditating or going on a walk because i think there's been enough evidence towards meditation going on a walk and getting outside and getting fresh air you know to actually back that up whereas and a lot of these things, they're not selling anything and there's no sort of price tag usually attached. You know, you can you can prescribe uh, as a doctor or just as a friend or whatever, uh, a load of things that are good for people's well-being without them spending any money. Um, like meditating, mm. going on a walk. Um, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I completely agree. And I used to be much more of a hardline um evidence-based medicine only everyone else is a quack and needs to be shut down and blah blah but so you've I've, softened I've, over the years i've softened yeah definitely <laughs> and i do think that you have to give people a certain personal liberty and you know to explore things that aren't medical evidence-based it's very interesting actually in this country um anybody can be a can kind of deliver medical treatments um to a, another human being without any real and you can't prescribe medicines, but like if you come up with a, a formula in your garage, you're within your rights to give that out to people. So could, could I commit then. surgery on you? Could I do surgery? On you? I think so. I think. <laughs> but interestingly, you can't do that on an animal. You can't you can't perform or give out unlicensed therapies or surgeries to an animal. Wow. I guess that makes sense, though. You probably couldn't do it on anyone who wasn't able to properly consent. I guess that would be the line, isn't it? So you couldn't do it to someone who uh, had sort of mental disabilities or, you know, dementia or, you know, something like that, I guess. I think that there's a lot of conditions. There's a lot of um, patients who we don't have a medical solution to as well. So people with things like um, chronic pain and um, things like that. I've, we see loads of these patients and they're very difficult to know what to do with them because loading them up with more and more kind of pharmaceutical agents isn't in their interests. Um, encouraging them to do exercise is probably the best thing for them, but they are often, they find that difficult and understandably if they're in horrible amounts of pain to try and get them mm. to go for a run every day is very difficult. Yeah. Um, I think that anything that though, that gives them relief whether that's the placebo effects or you know um or you know well yeah i guess placebo effect uh, that stop that relieves their symptoms i think is a positive thing um and i don't really think they need some like you know 14 year old like knocking on their door being like excuse me that's (laughs) you know that's not everything (laughs) i mean if it helps them and it's not causing them any harm i don't really see the problem it's my it's my kind of See, I'm concerned even with that. So um, I, I'm i not saying, by the way, I'm not saying, just to clarify, that it should be compulsory or it should be illegal. I'm not saying anything like that. I definitely agree. It's up to people's choice if they want to 
rub a leaf on their forehead to get over a, a chronic headache. But um, my problem is, and again, that sort of example you were giving, or the, the sort of situation you were giving where um, conventional medicine hasn't worked, evidence-based medicine, medicine has not worked. Um, I understand on the personal level, if someone feels that they want to go into alternative medicine, especially if that, you know, there's many examples I can come up with, I'm sure you as well, like if someone's uh, very close to death, and they know they haven't got long to live. Um, and, and even in conventional medicine, people choose to, to come off chemotherapy, because it's so horrendous. And it's it, their quality mm. of life and all that sort of stuff. And like you said, if someone's experiencing chronic pain, um, and they, their quality of life it would just be destroyed if they kept on trying to exercise and they were making very little progress but my concern is the societal impact as well and the long-term impact so the people with short-term amount of time or thinking more in the short term understand but the long-term impact i sort of i sort of relate it to religion and once you start to give up once uh, anyone starts to give up on evidence-based ways of doing things and um finding out uh, what what works for them then they're giving more power to these other ones that don't have the evidence base and it's and it, and it stops that inquiry it stops that honest scientific inquiry and it doesn't have to be scientific inquiry um in a lab somewhere just within themselves like um trying something and seeing if it makes an effect trying something see if it makes an effect and i think if we if we don't continue with mainstream medicine um, or at least bringing stuff in to mainstream medicine and um, that is pro proven, if we don't continue down that path of evidence-based um, when it gets tough and when there seems like there's no answers, then, then it won't grow as quickly as it can. Um, and I think people it's more likely people will just, when there's a wall, when there's like a gap or when the GP they're dealing with doesn't quite know what to do anymore. Um, it seems like if we if we then go to some thing that's not evidence-based, um, then we've given up on that sort of scientific progress, I guess, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I guess like you're saying that if there's, if we don't, if we accept defeat in you know trying to come up with evidence-based treatments for these people that they'll um there will never be there won't be the kind of uh, pressure to carry on doing research and trying to find out what the answer is yeah because i think there are so many you don't have to necessarily in most scenarios i don't feel you need to touch uh complementary medicine now I'm, I'm just saying for most i'm not saying for all um and I feel like we we know just outside of the normal GP thing. So the normal GP thing that you'll get prescribed is you'll see a, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'll see a specialist or they'll prescribe you a drug or they'll do stuff that has worked for decades uh, or stuff that's that's new. And it's, But we, we now know so much more outside of just that GP practice. You know, if you, if you, um look into sort of like sociology and sort of environmental factors that affect your health um if you uh psychology and and all this it's sort of there's so many fields within medicine but also so many scientific 
based learning you can do you know reading books about things and um i just feel like it's it's an easy way out it can be an easy way out and i'm not judging people who choose it um but it, it can be an easy way out and I, i'd say from my point of view as well if i look back because i had a undiagnosed tumor for five years and again this is just my experience um it was very i was going through so many health professionals who just didn't have a clue what was going on they just didn't know they did all the tests did all the tests i even asked to be done and nothing showed up and even though they actually did the test for the tumor that i thought i had which i did have the test showed up with nothing so I was constantly going through the healthcare system and I I just know if I had given up on it and gone to uh you know complementary medicine um then I wouldn't have found out as quickly and I just yeah. there's that worry in my mind that it's a bit of a I don't know what you're saying yeah yeah I think um well yeah well, I think it's a bit of a difficult I think the scenario that I'm envisaging is a bit difficult because you're sort of like a young man who, you know, I think that everybody, all the healthcare professionals that you saw were quite convinced there was something wrong with you, but they just couldn't find out what it was. Does that make sense? Yeah, but some of them weren't. Some of them were quite dismissive. Some of them were, I remember uh, the year before I found out, um, a GP said to me, look, you're just going to have to accept it's migraines. You don't like, and... And yeah, I guess that's accepting there's something wrong with me. But it, um, I've got to say, on the whole, yeah. I, 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 I was uh, interacting with healthcare professionals who were really brilliant and I um, can't fault them. They were amazing. But occasionally I did come across the odd one that was a bit dismissive. And because it was pain and it was, uh, I, mm. I was never showing it when I was in their office and it never showed up on tests and things like that. Um, yeah. You know, I went to CBT. Yeah, I was I was willing for it to be psychological, um, yeah. um, but then the CBT that didn't help, and yeah, mm. yeah, I understand what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I, it, that's a fair point. Um, I don't think, and as I said before, I don't think that alternative or complementary therapies should um, replace conventional medicine, which, in my opinion, should be at the forefront of, of people like when you have a healthcare problem too to seek attention from but i think that there are some cases where people want to try something that's outside of my expertise and i don't necessarily uh, as long as there's no harm in it i'm not i'm not somebody who would say definitely don't do that it, no you know, um no and my concern of it is not um that the gps are doing the wrong thing my concern is just people's mindset around it and um there's so many things that your gp would never you would never even think of but for your own learning and for your own trial and error with other things um which potentially have a lot more evidence behind them um sorry like like what like what would you what do you mean in like i don't know like um like like meditation is one so that's something that i know it's becoming more prevalent nowadays but i guess like 10 years ago it would be unlikely that your gp would ever recommend meditation um 
I think there's a there's a definitely a movement in uh, general practice um, towards what's called social prescribing. Right. Um, okay. Which is um, it's prescribing non-medical therapies, so um, things like uh, singing. Yeah. Is like apparently a really yeah. It's thing. Uh, mindfulness classes and like gardening, like trying to get mm. really people into these sort of um, settings where they have something good to look forward to in the week social interactions you know how lonely people yeah. are i think there's definitely uh, a limit to the medical model in terms of like it can't provide all answers for everybody no and i think the first like the first we recognize that and try and look at what yeah the alternative are which is this what the social prescribing sort of come out of that i think that we we can provide more powerful interventions but they do require um you know motivation from the person who's in front of you yeah definitely and like i say it's not the onus is not on well either the doctor or the patient it's just it's just a general education and understanding uh from the individuals as they are i just feel like every person that goes to crystal healing <laughs> to yeah. to to cure their depression that could be someone again i'm not saying it's the gp's responsibility that's someone who maybe maybe they live alone and maybe they hardly ever see anyone. And maybe if they, you know, they were young enough to join like a meetup app and they started seeing people. It could be, you know, the inquiry within themselves, they could find, actually, I'm not seeing people hardly ever. And, you know, that has led over the, time. What's the difference between them going to a singing group and then going to a crystal healing group? <laughs> because I think there's a lot of evidence that there's many factors within singing Okay, if it's a group, then then obviously the social part of um, the social part of going to the crystal group would be the main thing I would see, um, because yeah. obviously with evidence based yeah. medicine, medicine you have to isolate and you have to use uh, RCTs, so randomized controlled trials, and you have to really find out exactly what is the thing doing the harm or the good. Um, I think there is probably. I think there's a limit to that, though. Like, do we, I don't know, do we need a randomized control trial to say that, you know, singing is a positive, you know, activity or, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I do think there's a limit but, to that. Sure, but I think, see, for me, I feel it's really important to find roots of the problem. And I think these things like um, uh, crystals, like, let's just take crystals as an example. If people believe so much that the root of their problems is they're not having enough crystals in their life or the right crystal in their life, then they're going to seek that. Whereas actually, going from a, to a group with crystals, they might feel great afterwards. But actually, um, it might just be because um, they were spending time with people and they were all agreeing on stuff and they were having a laugh, having a chat. And, you know, uh. um, so I, th I think it is important. And it's not important for the average person whose mental health is generally okay to have ups and downs but they're fine it's important for to spread the right information to the people who really don't know what the problem is and i think i don't know but i would imagine there's some actually genuinely good evidence that singing itself uh produces endorphins helps your brain in some way whereas uh, and that obviously tested against placebo because you have to test everything against a placebo just because something works for you and makes you feel better doesn't mean it's because of the reason it's yeah. said to be um i think there would be more evidence behind singing being more helpful 
than um, crystals. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, but there might be some people who, you know, I don't know. I think like the I think that what I'm trying to say is that we shouldn't be kind of um, leveraging our prejudice against, you know, certain people's certain people's health beliefs. In so uh, you know, I, we can make generalizations, but we sh I, I think that so like what's the difference between going for a massage and going to a Reiki healer? Like there's there's probably limited evidence for either, but in our in our view, a massage is a legitimate thing to do, and uh, going to a Reiki healer is illegitimate, and those people are being exploited. Blah blah. It's I think it's a difficult balance. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that these people are definitely being exploited. And I think actually the vast majority of uh, practitioners for uh, complementary healthcare really believe in what they're doing. And their patients really do see benefits. I, I have no doubt about that. And I think that is true. But I think um, it's really important for each individual when they're finding out what is wrong with them and that, what are the most effective ways to help themselves. I think, I think, yeah, I think we need to be, I think it's important to be accurate about that, especially for the people that are really suffering, not the average Joe who just, you know, feels a bit down sometimes, you know. Well, that's uh, more what I'm talking about, people who just have, like, some problems in their personal life or work life that just get them down. And I don't think that the medical model of depression and antidepressants and things like that really is going to sort out that problem, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, I, for, what I'm saying is for the people that are really suffering, like, you know, I don't care if, you know, middle class woman who's got a nice life and she, she's all fine and she's, you know, her health's really good and her life's really great and she wants to rub a crystal on her forehead. I don't, it doesn't matter, you know, whatever. But yeah, okay. if someone is really suffering with depression and they get wind of this, uh you know they just have the wrong awareness and education around crystals as an example mm. then that that would see them decline further because placebo is a wonderful thing but it only goes so far in helping people and it needs to yeah, be I seen it needs easy. to be seen for what it is if you see if you go to a crystal healer and you know is it it's a placebo well first of all it, it wouldn't really work if you knew it was a placebo but if you're aware of it, then then fine. But it's the people who are unaware and 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 they end up going on a downward spiral. And um, you know they maybe need some really intensive psychiatry or you know any of these other factors which would genuinely help them, as opposed to spending years and years trying out these crystals. Oh, you got the wrong crystal. Try this one. Oh no, maybe you need to put this oil on your your toe. It's and then you see these people who really need the help and really need accurate diagnosis who will just get worse. At the very least, they won't get any better. I think um, G like GPs and healthcare professionals in general are very um, wary of, of those patients and we know who they are and we're very protective over them. Yeah. And the advice that you give one person isn't the same as what you might give another person. Yeah. Yeah. Someone like that saying, should I go to a crystal healer doctor? I'd probably say, I don't think it's going to, you know, it's going to help yeah. your problem. But, um, but somebody else, as you said, who's like, um, you know, uh, not in a vulnerable category, 
who says, oh, I go to a crystal healer. What do you think about that? <laughs> I generally say, I don't care. It's not for you. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. No, yeah. And, and like I say, just to reiterate, I'm not putting the onus on the GP. The GPs are already stretched massively to what they can achieve, even within everything they're supposed to do um, normally within 10 minutes or whatever it is. So I'm not putting that onus on the GP. Um, it's more like there's only so much yeah. GPs can do. So it's more like, I guess I'm sort of spreading my message to the <laughs> the very limited yeah. number of people that would uh, listen to this. But it's sort of like, I think education has to happen. And it's, again, it's not on the GP. It's about everyone else. It's sort of education has to happen about what these alternative medicines, what they really are, how much evidence is actually behind them. And then people can make a better choice. Um, that's my I agree, opinion. yeah. My, I, I've softened in terms of because I think that trying to work work with the person and work with their health beliefs is a more positive kind of um, relationship than you know somebody who's quite into complementary therapies but also has a couple of health problems that comes to the GP quite regularly um, for monitoring or whatever it is. Um, I I don't I think that kind of getting getting their back up about what's evidence-based and what isn't evidence-based you know I, I i wonder whether that's really the way forward i don't i don't wonder where do you see this you know education in terms of what's evidence-based and what isn't evidence-based coming from well like we were mentioning at the start of the conversation you know instead of people looking at uh, uh crystal websites for uh how they should treat you know th this stone will treat your anxiety and social situation this stone will they'll, they'll be looking at the nhs website and i think again it comes back sort of full circle to this idea of information uh how it's spread like what we trust and educating people what information sources to trust um and mm. i'll just we we've gone way over time but I've, I've loved the conversation um and uh but i'll just sort of end with my point is um really good book um that you recommended to me actually years ago um called bad science by ben goldacre um it's very funny it's very readable um but it sort of goes into this whole whole thing of um uh evidence-based medicine and complementary medicines and things like that and i that sort of sent me on a path of really understanding more and more um yeah uh, about about evidence-based medicine so i would recommend that to anyone who's uh, interested yeah i think that's a really good book as well actually i'm a big fan of that sweet all right well we'll um we'll we'll end it there i am absolutely sweating i don't know about you I'm not so hot. I'm really the toilet though. I've just been thinking about whether I go, whether it come on the microphone. Yeah, I mean maybe just have a bottle next to you next time. Um but yeah, <laughs> I my room is I'm in my room, I'm in the corner of my room. Um it's just a little bit of a reveal behind the scenes to anyone listening, but um I'm in the corner of my tiny room and um because it's the best place for sound. And I close the window and ask all my guests to close the window. But I'm in this tiny room, the window closed. The sun is beaming through the window. I've had to close the curtains as well because that helps with the sound containment and all that. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a sweat box at the moment. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. um, anyway, I'll just say to anyone listening, um, 
I I know I had some strong views on this. Um, and would you, uh, George, you've been uh, very, very diplomatic in your diplomatic. answers. Yeah. Um, if anyone <laughs> is anti-vaccine, if anyone really believes in certain alternative medicine, uh, complementary medicines or anything like that, I would really love to hear from you. I don't want to be end up in an echo chamber of just hearing my own viewpoints. And, you know, I, I'd love to get some some strong um, opposition on any of my views. So, yeah, please let me know if you have anything you'd like to come on and talk about. Um, but, yeah, finally, I'd just like to say thank you very much, George. Well, thanks very much, Dan. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I hope yeah, to see sp- speak to you soon. Yeah. There's something else I'd like to say to any listeners, all three of you. This podcast is an ongoing process. It's an ongoing experiment. I'm trying things out and seeing what works and what doesn't. And so any feedback on this or other episodes will be really appreciated. I don't want this podcast to just be for my own enjoyment. The goal is for it to benefit people in some way. And constructive feedback is the best way to know if this goal is being achieved. If I don't know something's rubbish, then I'll just keep producing rubbish. If I don't know something's good, then I'll just stop producing anything good. And Also, if you think of anyone that you know that would be a good guest for me to chat to, then please let me know. I would love the opportunity to speak to a wide range of people about an even wider range of subjects. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you continue the conversation. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.